Welcome to the Suicide Prevention Show. It's a show because our aim is to be entertaining and to be engaging and to bring you into a world where suicide is a thing of the past, where self-sabotage has been replaced by self-empowerment. That's the world that we inhabit. And to walk us through what that journey might look like, I'd like to welcome into the studio, Scott Sargent. So Scott, would you be willing to see it? Have you could manage, actually, it's not you. I know we got tech in the background. I think we got some magic happening. There's a camera coming on. Uh-oh, hey, Scott, there you are. Yes, woohoo, it's to, magic. the shadow. I'm like a. Yep. So there you go. You got the, sh that's okay. That's fine that the shadow is there. We're not worried about shadows. We oh do gosh. shadow boxing here. Well, I don't know if uh, Katie mentioned, um, you know, I had a little excitement uh, 10, 15 minutes ago trying to get in ahead of time. My computer won't power on. <laughs> Ooh. All right. Um, so for anyone who's listening to this, take a deep breath and don't panic because you just said the most anxiety producing words in the current age. My computer won't power on. Well, seriously. And uh, one of my mentors is one of the founders of the Navy SEALs. And they have a saying that two is one and one is none. Uh, so in other words, I always have a backup and I'm grateful that my trusty handy dandy tablet is right there ready to go so the show will go on it won't may not be quite as uh, a high production value as my webcam and my microphone but we will we will manage you know I'm able to hear you just fine so people will chat and let us know I think we are good to go Scott I am so grateful that you were able to make time to come on the show today. I just want to tell you that I feel very blessed. Mm, my pleasure. Let's take people on a journey because when I was writing up the description of the show, what I was finding myself writing, I was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, how do I explain that we're going to talk about a journey from, you know, Olympic level athlete, you know, you're going to have to talk to us about what you were doing at that level because I was reading your bio going, oh my goodness, I can only imagine the, what that event was like to experience. So I'm, I want you to take us there. Mm -hmm. And then what happened next? Because you have been on, well, let's face it, you've had an experience that very few people, every level of your life, but we've all had our highs. And maybe we've all had the same journey down to low. And so your willingness to share that story with us is so appreciated. Mm, absolutely, well, my pleasure and I'm honored to be here. So um, I know you'll probably navigate with a lot more questions and I'll, uh, try to keep pretty focused with uh, so much the, the ground that I could, could cover. But yes, I've had a lot of high highs and some uh, very low lows. So, um, but you know, I, 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 so I'm a retired aerospace engineer. I got a mechanical engineering degree in college. 
Um, and one of the things I like to, you know, you talk about sine waves and, you know, waves go up and down. And in life, this is not a good thing if you're flatlining. <laughs> so, you know, it's part of the normal experience of life for us is to go up and, and if you're at a high, then, you know, enjoy it while you can because it's good, you know, you're going to get a correction. Uh, and when you're at a low, low, um, if you don't get too bound up with that, you know, things are one way or another bound to change and get hopefully get uh, better. So, um, yeah, back, uh, tracing back um, through growing up, I had a real love and passion for sports. Uh, I actually grew up with the soccer and baseball as my main events. And I was always a superstar, you know, one of the home run kings and in the playoffs and all stars and all that all this time. Uh, it was also a really good student. My mother was a high school chemistry teacher. My father was an engineer. I uh, sometimes joke that I, they had, you know, I grew up with Scientific American Journal on the coffee table and I actually read it. Um, my dad gave me Gray's Anatomy, you know, the, the medical uh, anatomy textbook when I was about 10 years old because as an engineer, he'd been laid off, changes in industries, you know, what have you, and felt like medicine would be a more, uh, you know, stable profession and was trying to nudge me that way that early on. <laughs> subtle. That was subtle. Yeah. <laughs> Parents, we do this to our kids, you know. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I was in, in, in wanting to relate to, you know, a segment of the audience being teens. I was a very, you know, kind of mature, very self-aware uh, growing up and, and as a teenager, pretty, really perceptive and insightful. And, um, well, not to get too esoteric at this point, but I realized looking back, there were things that I had kind of in my intuitive nature and that I could even, uh, you know, kind of feel and, and sense energy in, in ways that I didn't have language to articulate until decades later. But, um, and I never felt, you know, bad or weird or awkward about that. It just wasn't something that was in the mainstream of conversation that ever came up. But um, I wasn't the fastest athlete, but I would get to the ball first because I knew it was going to, where it was going to go. And ah. I didn't realize that you know, most people don't know that or have, you know, have that awareness. Um, but anyway, I was uh, graduated second in my high school class. I'm, I grew up in Orange County and chose UC San Diego because uh, I loved the area. I didn't want to leave Southern California. There in La Jolla, you know, looking out over the ocean, uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography. I thought if I didn't like engineering, I could always, you know, segue into, um, oceanography or marine biology or what have you. Uh, my dad was a, a, a bit of an adventurer, quite a bit of an adventurer. So um, weekends away from engineering in school, we'd go out camping. Uh, he was into motorcycling, dune bugging. You know, we were snorkeling and scuba diving and um, fishing. And, you know, he took up hang gliding was one of his latest things. Wow. Yeah, and, and he actually passed away when I was 13. So uh, I've tended to say I had a very contentious relationship with my father. You know, he wasn't really into my sports. Um, in some ways, I think maybe he felt jealous or just didn't understand it. He wanted to do other things. And at the time, it didn't really bother me that much. It wasn't even really missing that it was missing because my mom was yelling so hard and loud in the stands. I was embarrassed enough. I'm like, you know, I toned it down, mom. Like I, I didn't need another one literally cheering me. But then, you know, looking back, um, obviously, you know, what kid wouldn't want to have a father 
that was celebrating those accomplishments and really into it. And, uh, and so that's something I recognize, you know, later on looking back. And uh, another big thing is, so he died when I was 13. He was actually motorcycling in Mexico. Uh, the story, as I understand it, he basically was on a dirt kind of fire road, took a turn too fast and went off the, the side of the road, you know, down a bank mm. uh, and on top of him broke his neck. So I'm seeding a few interesting things, maybe meandering uh, somewhat, but uh, I, again, graduated second in my class, you know, very successful. I was Orange County Scholar Athlete, right? I got all these awards um, and chose UC San Diego for engineering. They have a very strong engineering program. Fell in love with the location. My freshman year, I'm in the dorm room, look, literally looking out over the sunset out my dorm room window and um, wanting to pursue engineering, thinking that I was choosing from all the available choices. Uh, but again, realizing, looking back, that was very heavily influenced by my, uh, my father's career and my mother as well, you know, focusing toward that math science. So anyway, um, another thing to note is in high school, I got kind of fed up with the politics of soccer and especially baseball. And I ended up switching gears to track and field. And of all things, I started throwing the shot foot, which at first I thought this is the dumbest sport ever. It's like this the high school boys is 12 pounds steel ball. You, you know, hold it at your shoulder and you, you know, heave it as far as you can. And a good throw at that level is maybe 50, 55 feet. And so not nearly as exciting as kicking a soccer ball, you know, 30 yards or hitting a home run, you know, out of the ballpark, hundreds of feet, right? But it got to a point where it was better than the, the politics that I was dealing with. So anyway, um, <laughs> the politics in which field was politics at that age? Well, largely baseball, you know, so uh -huh. again, uh, my father wasn't part of the mix. So there were other kids who, you know, had parents that were involved. And so I, I ended up not playing as much as other people that I really felt that I was better than, you know, and in little league and growing up before high school, I'd always been a superstar. I was a starter, you know, I was a home run king, what have you. Now I'm sitting on the bench when somebody that I really felt wasn't as good as me was playing because of a political angle, you know, between the coaches and the parents and, you know, those dynamics. That's a pretty early age to become aware of pol political drama and the power of politics. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and another thing was that I was a 4.0 student and, um, in my high school anyway, which I went to a very good, both academic and sports school, Los Alamitos High in, uh, in North County. Um, the foot, the, the, most of the athletes, especially the baseball players, were all giving high fives if they got their minimum, you know, 2.0 C average, so they'd be eligible to compete in sports. Um, but like, I, one of the things I didn't realize until later, looking back, was that as, as an athlete, I was playing soccer in the fall, which you would think would be an added benefit right here's a great athlete he's doing another sport well the other guys that weren't playing other sports were practicing baseball for those three months oh and so then i came out and the coach sometimes would give preference to those athletes that have been putting more time in you know that had been there longer you know understanding what matters to the person who's in charge you know, we call it the ballpark theory inside my training program, understanding the agenda of the club owner and the rules of the game. It's not a perspective that any child has. 
you know, and that's, that's so brilliant. I didn't piece it together till later in life, but you know, one of the, the greatest lessons of games is learning to play the game by the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. And life is like that. And so many endeavors are like that where it is one big game and there's rules out on the court. There's external rules that um, very much behoove and benefit you to learn. Mm -hmm. So that you could, first of all, recognize you're playing a game. <laughs> That's a really good start. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you know that you're playing the game, then you can play the game to the best advantage and also have a little bit of perspective of not taking things as personally, just realizing you're like, you're playing a game and other people are playing a game and you're all playing a game, you know, with and against each other and what have you. So yeah. um, even right now in this, I'm looking back, like the, the, the game shoots and ladders, right? You're going along and you're going up and up and up. And then you get a, you, you know, you get on the spot and all of a sudden you get to go up three levels and then you're going on along and then you hit, you land on something else and woo, there you go down. <laughs> you know, what a, what a great uh, life metaphor, right? Cause there are those things where we, we find a mentor, we stumble onto an opportunity, you know, we've done our preparation or we've been, you know, visioning that. And then we're on this escalator that helps us advance really quickly. Or sometimes you're not watching, not paying attention, not aware of the the game that's going on, either externally or internally, because you you know you and I both do a lot of work on the internal game, mm -hmm. right? And uh, all of a sudden that can kind of blow up in your face. So we'll get to some of that in my life experience. <laughs> um, there we go. You go right ahead and take us there, Scott. You have such a story, and your background was that sports came easily to you. What's the problem when you have that kind of natural ability? Well, I was also really uh, school, you know, I was really gifted at academics. Most mm -hmm. of them came easy to me and the things that didn't, I didn't really do, but there was plenty to be good at, you know, that I did. Um, what's the problem with that? Um, two things that I can think of off the top of my head. It's a great question. Uh, the first is that it probably can tend to narrow your focus a little bit. It's pretty natural to do the things that are fun and easy, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And um, You know, the degree of um, acknowledgement and uh, celebration, validation, you know, whatever that I got from other people, teachers, peers, what have you um feels really good you know you could even look at it through a lens of addiction ah another, it's right? a whole nother conversation when we're talking about external validation and being addicted to what that feels like and this is this is really good you know i like playing with numbers sometimes and you know and now at 51 looking back instead of being 15 <laughs> there you go Lots of different perspectives on these things, and um, but again, I was uh, was was a very very aware. I think um, the other thing is that I'm trying to remember exactly what I said. The first thing is that it's it can narrow your focus, right? You're not mm -hmm. going to adventurous to look outside for other things and explore other things that might not be easy at first because they aren't so natural. You know, you stick with the things that are really, really fun and easy. Um, I think the other 
thing is that maybe that it is a little bit of a setup for further down the road eventually I don't like the saying that life is hard but there are hard things in life <laughs> oh now there's a there's a quotable it's not that life is hard but that there are hard things in life so granted I am so with you there because I agree it's not that life is hard but I've had a few hard things in life, so I'll bet everybody listening to this interview will be able to relate to that, Scott. That was lovely. So keep us moving through this journey because right now, I mean, you were up and up and up. Your dad died in a motorcycle accident. Well, you were only 13. And then you were up and up and up through high school, gifted academically gifted sports wise you know uh, starting to get aware that there's such a thing as wait a minute why isn't this working the way that i thought it would i thought being the most gifted player i'd get to play not realizing that the coach would have favoritism towards the people who had actually showed up for early practice in the fall yeah so i mean you're getting this education that many of us just are oblivious to and then what? <laughs> well, so many, and then what? Um, I think quickly worth highlighting with my father, again, this sort of mixed energy. So I, I literally remember when I got the news that he had died, feeling this intense emotion come up, you know, from my belly and rise up to my solar plexus and underneath my heart. And there was an agonizing grief in it, but I just very willfully stuffed it down. I'm like, no, I got to be strong for my mom and my brother. Ooh. And there was an element even before that where I kind of was trying to be more matured, more of an adult, and because my dad was kind of playing and goofing up, you know, yeah. even doing really daredevil things, motorcycling and hang gliding. You know, if you look at that objectively, it's like, wait a minute, you got a family. What, why are you doing these daredevil things? Scuba diving. Um, but so there was this big suppressed grief, right? And then uh, actually a couple years later, when I was getting ready to drive, my mom had kept the car that my father uh, had been driving at the time when he passed. And I'm cleaning it up and I'm getting excited and, you know, getting ready to do my learner's permit. And underneath the floor mats, uh, I found a letter and a picture turned out to be from a woman that my father had had an affair with. Now, I hadn't known that. As far as I knew, my mom and brother didn't know that. I was appalled, you know, how could he, I was raised in the Presbyterian church. So even though I didn't, you know, I say, I don't really consciously subscribe to that dogma, but the programming was still there about fidelity, betrayal, you know, sin, all that stuff. So mm -hmm. there was real um, rage. How could he? Um, but I ended up burning the letter in the picture. I swore I could never tell anybody and literally told myself i'm going to take this secret to my grave that's a heavy duty secret for a 16 year old to carry for their parent wow and again at the time it I'm, seemed like the best idea at the time i get that you know what i mean like you know i'm like i got this basically right like not cool but okay whatever you know there are plenty of things that my dad was had 
been annoying to me anyway. Um, and I even look back and could see there were, there were ways that I felt bullied. You heard me earlier say I've had a contentious relationship with my father. Mm -hmm. Really, literally in the last year have I realized, as I've been hearing the term bullying in the mental health space and more in our common conversation, I was like, oh, I felt bullied by my father. Mm -hmm. I wasn't an alcoholic. He didn't beat on me, you know, like, but there were things that he did and there were ways that it landed for me. Yes. So there was actually also an element of relief when he passed away. That again, I also didn't really identify until years later. But anyway, so there's all of that kind of, I'm laying some of the underpinnings because I think it's relevant mm -hmm. and I think it's valuable in some ways uh, to some of the um, potentially younger listeners that might be, you know, listening to or watching this show recognize that there's these things that may seem big or small at the time, but they can end up having a bit of a ripple effect. And um, we're going to call the core conflict that you felt when your dad passed away as that's an elephant. Let's just name it. <laughs> there was two very distinct emotional states that you were dealing with or actually not dealing with because you decided you needed to be strong for your family because that's what sick that's what 13 year old boys do in their families that they've been raised with this model of emotion and so you had the emotion of grief and loss and the emotion of relief and freedom and all of it got stuffed well you say elephant and it wasn't the elephant in the room it was the elephant that I dug a big deep hole and buried it down you know mm -hmm. um, and you know sometimes when I speak I've these are only things that I've really been publicly revealing in the last year to two years you know I had my TEDx talk three years ago where I revealed some of the big secrets I'm going to talk about later but um, the third a third pretty really significant let's call it elephant that happened when I was growing up um, about the same time as discovering the affair, um, I had a bit of a confrontation with my mom. And again, I'm a really good kid. I'm an Eagle Scout. We're going to church and all this stuff. I'm a star student, star athlete. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, none of that misbehaving antics. And um, but I had some kind of an argument with my mom and kind of a confrontation. And I was mouthing off. And I may have some some swear word. And I don't know if I said something to her or you know in front of her, but. Basically, she went to slap me upside the head. And I never, I didn't get physically punished. Like maybe my dad swatted me in the butt twice because I know I definitely had deserved it. Right? <laughs> so, um, but I ended up, I was such a, you know, able to react and I grabbed her arm mid strike and I was, and I, you know, I caught that and I was like, don't you ever try to hit me. And, you know, of course, I was like shocked and appalled and really hurt, but what came out was anger. And actually a very healthy, you know, like protecting myself from a physical assault. And I could see in my mom's eyes like this, oh shit, because now I've got this kid that's big and strong. And, you know, I imagine that she thought, well, you know, like he could even hurt me. Now I would never, ever, ever, you know, do that to my mom. But that was me protecting myself. And so then we just kind of parted, parted ways. Well, later she came up to my room 
um, was all somber and said, you know, you've been getting more and more difficult to deal with since your father died. Um, and if you don't shape up, I don't know what else to do except to send you to military school. Wow. So that to me was another big one. And what happened there was like, boom, like there was now that wall, that screen, that facade, that no matter how I felt on the inside, it wasn't okay to express or act in anger and to a degree even feel anger. So that started like significantly again, getting suppressed and repressed. And I remember in sports, you know, in high school recognizing that that was an outlet for anger and aggression and frustration, you know, that's a healthy and accepted outlet in our, in our society. I'm so you were kind of like a pressure cooker and that just turned up the heat. Yeah. And we're talking before I got my driver's license, all this stuff is before I'm 16. Wow. And again, on the surface, I'm the superstar. Everything's great. I'm kind of like a junior Tony Robbins, right? People are looking for me, to me for motivation, inspiration. Um, after my father died, you know, never was there a therapist. It was like, how are you? What's really going on? Like, how are you feeling? It was just like, oh, we're, you know, so glad that your mom, you know, is so lucky to have a strong as, you know, a son as strong as you. Oh, I'm sure you got praised for being emotionally stoic. Yep, very much so. Uh, I'm, I'm weeping inside for a kid that I can so relate to. So emotionally stoic. Not something we want our kids to be. We want them to be emotionally resilient instead. That's what we've learned over the last few decades is the difference between those two words. Wow. So you're a pressure cooker. What happened? Well, I, again, I'm at a really high, high point when I graduating top of my class, you know, superstar athlete, uh, you know, it was a four-time varsity letter between soccer and the shot put. I actually ended up, go, you know, almost breaking the school record, almost going to the state meet, which is two years of, of, you know, competing in the shot put. And I really enjoyed the team camaraderie with track and field where, you know, we'd be in our individual event disciplines, but we'd all warm up together every day before practice. And then we'd travel together to the meets. And then, you know, there'd be a lot of time to hang out when you weren't in your event, you'd be cheering other people and, mm -hmm. <laughs> pardon me, a really great time. So um, at UCSD, I went out and, you know, was starting into the engineering curriculum, which was pretty challenging academically. And uh, went out to talk to the track coach about throwing the shot put. Just wanting to, you know, thinking I'd do something to stay, you know, active and competitive or whatever. And uh, he watched me throw and he's like, okay, you know, you got some potential. There's some things, you know, we'll have to work on. Uh, by the way, you know, have you th ever thought about throwing the hammer? And I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> In my mind's eye, I'm picturing like some kind of a hatchet throw into a tree or something, you know? <laughs> and uh, he's like, no, it's a, it's a 16 pound ball. So the, the collegiate weight for the shot and the hammer is 16 pounds instead of well, for high school, 16 pound ball. So if you can imagine a bowling ball at the end of a four foot wire. Whoa. And then a D-shaped metal handle that you hold on at the end. So you've got a glove on one hand, you're holding this handle with two hands. You stand in a seven feet, uh, seven foot diameter concrete circle. So if you think about it, seven feet's not that 
day around. Like if basically you lie down and stretch your arms above your head, you're probably more than, well, you're probably about seven feet. So from there, you start swinging this thing around and then you actually pivot heel toe. So you're like a ballerina. Ah. But I, I say it's like a, a cross between a ballerina and lumberjack because it's like you're holding a big timber log. Again, this bowling ball at the end of the, at, at the, end of the wire. And as you spin and accelerate, the centripetal force causes that effectively to weigh more and more or exert more and more force. So in college, a good throw is about 200 feet. And by the time you're throwing at that distance, that, that ball is weighing a good like four or 500 pounds. Whoa, okay. While you're spinning, you know, like a ballerina, it, it's going 50, 60 miles an hour by the time you release it. Okay, so a very precise, very intense sport required a lot of presence. Very technical. And I just, you know, I just, I got hooked. I loved it right off the bat. Um, I was gifted. Again, it's one of the things that came easily and quickly to me. I think my engineering, you know, analytical mindset and, you know, kind of kinesthetic and spatial awareness. Um, I was able to really understand the technique and all the different complex movements that had to be coordinated. So mm -hmm. I felt really, really quickly. And I, I really loved the event. I worked my tail off, you know, and, and summers I would take hammers home and I have video. I had a friend, you know, at a local college and it's getting darker and darker and it's like pitch black and you could just hear the sounds of me grunting and my foot, you know, tapping and grinding on the concrete. Every once in a while, there's this big, you know, burst of sparks when I'd hit the ground, you know, with the ball. So um, I ended up winning the collegiate championship just as a, a sophomore, my second year in the sport, which is really unheard of. You know, normally you're not even competing in a national championships till a junior or senior year. Uh, and then I won again and broke the, the all-time record. And the year I graduated from college, mind you, I'm pursuing an engineering degree at a, at a highly competitive school, which was extremely difficult. But I sometimes joke that I majored in hammer throwing and minored in mechanical engineering. <laughs> like I invested that much time and energy, you know, training 25 mm -hmm. hours a week, six days a week, and then going away, you know, for competitions during the, during the school year. So, or during the season. Uh, anyway, the year I um, graduated, I, made it not only to you know break that national record but i ended up qualifying for the olympic trials so i went from the proverbial big fish in the little pond to actually i was number 22 overall on the national stage Ooh. so if you can imagine being like the number 22 ranked tennis player or the number 22 ranked baseball player basketball player like that's the level that i made it to in this sport now hammer throwing is not nearly as common or, or well known and celebrated <laughs> and your brain went there as opposed to celebrating the fact that you're number 22 in the nation in a sport you have qualified for the olympic trials the celebration got buried behind the but it's not as good as well i think and that the, there's some truth to that and uh, it's good. It's a good thing to speak to, but I think, yeah, the one of the pitfalls, or what I sometimes refer to the success syndrome of of high performers, is oftentimes we are more focused on the gap 
of you know where we are to where we want to be versus all that huge ground that we've covered to get to where we are. Mm -hmm. Yes, I wasn't celebrating as much the victory and the conquest of like, okay, now I like, I won that game and here's the next game. Now, mm -hmm. now I got to get into the elite. Like I now got to make the Olympic team. Like that's the next big challenge or tier. And within just a couple of years, I went from 22 to number 10. I broke up, I broke into the 10 top 10 nationally. And I'm training with the other top athletes in the country and, you know, on this national stage with now, you know, a viable shot, like seeing within reach this goal of making an Olympic team. I was always inspired by the Olympics growing up. And, but what I dreamed about was the world cup or, or the world series, you know, in soccer and baseball, I never imagined that I would be, you know, in one of the throwing events of track and field of all things, you know, maybe Bruce Jenner in the, in the, you know, uh, decathlon or something like that. But shot put, hammer throw, I didn't even know what hammer throw was. Yeah. But here I am having this Olympic, you know, dream now emerge uh, that's something that now is looking attainable. It's not just like saying I'm going to win the lottery, right? Like mm -hmm. there's some, some real reality to it. So I was really invigorated that. Um, but you know how the Olympics, they call it, uh, you know, an amateur athlete? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that pretty much means you don't get paid. Yeah. That's exactly what it means. The difference between an amateur and a professional in anything is whether or not there's a paycheck. Absolutely. And so fortunately, I had this engineering degree. Uh, I went full to work full time as an engineer to support myself. Um, because basically, you know, being that amateur athlete, it means you don't get paid. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't any uh, professional hammer throwing circuit or teams in the US for me to join uh, and, and be taken care of. Mm -hmm. If I'd been, you know, number 22 or number 10 in any other professional paying sport in the U.S., I'd have been doing pretty darn good. You know, that would have been able to full-time focus on that. But so imagine I'm training still 20, 25, 30 hours a week, 11 months out of the year. I'm super focused and passionate about that. There's a huge, you know, physical, mental, emotional load with what I'm investing there. But now I'm working... 40, 50, 60 hours a week as an engineer with project deadlines and restrictions. So sometimes mm -hmm. I get to go throw at lunchtime. Sometimes I'd literally be in the, in the dark by myself with a fat flashlight trying to paint fluorescent paint on the ball so I could find it in the dark. You know? But like that's how much I loved it and that's how determined I was you know, to pursue that. But you know, you talk about the pressure cooker um, one of the ways I was able to accomplish that is probably sleeping five and a half to six and a half hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. So there was an amount of sleep that now at 25 years old, I was able to still do that. Um, but there was a certain amount of, uh, a sleep deprivation that was accumulating and a certain amount of, of stress and what we call overtraining. And mm -hmm. here's something that I was actually very aware of those things and thinking that I was managing them. I'm also doing personal development, leadership training, running a nonprofit. Like I had beyond the full plate and I'm a superstar. And so I can deal with it. I got this. And, and I, frequently people would be like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. You're oh so inspiring. And I'm like, yeah, I worked my butt off. I was good at all these things. Like I really owned and, and embodied that. 
So, you know, here we go. The year before the Olympic Games in Sydney, I'm working with the world record holder as one of my personal coaches. I'm training and competing with the other top athletes and coaches in the US. I'm one of the first athletes at the Olympic Training Center in Southeast San Diego. And um, instead of going to Oregon and other places, I'm like, hey, you guys should come down here where the weather's great and we got this amazing facility. Um, I actually was the, the athlete's advisory representative for all the men's throwing events. So uh, all the hammer shot, discus and, and javelin are the ones that I'm now a representative to USA Track and Field and the US Olympic Committee in my free time. In all your free seconds, I got this. And I had this vision for that special woman and, and life partner, um, but I was, I had such a high standard for myself in my life. I had a very, very high bar and a high standard for that. I had like a three page list of the, of the characteristics and the qualities that I wanted. Um, we love personal development work. Right. I had a whole elaborate vision for what that relationship was going to look like. I wrote this amazing poem, you know, that was called My Quest for Love, right? And in that, the, the emotional richness and tapestry of what I wanted. So um, 29 years old, and I meet this woman, and she seems to meet up with all these criteria. In fact, I'll accept two. She, was, she had a cat instead of being a dog person. Um, and she Ooh, was a morning person and I was a, definitely a night owl. I thought, okay, well, I could concede those two things. And, uh, we started dating and, and really dove into this very, you know, intense, passionate love affair. Uh, and she was doing other leadership training and, and development work too. And so, you know, the standard that she was, uh, conducting herself with, and it, it, it felt like there was an alignment. This is like someone I was seeing a lifelong partnership with. Mm -hmm. And then things started to kind of get a little erratic and some things were happening where, you know, for example, like this seems like a pretty small thing, but I called her one time and I'm like, Hey, where are you at? She's like, Oh, I'm at Starbucks. And I'm like, wait a minute. I thought you didn't drink coffee. And I'm like, Oh, well, I'm just this one time. And the level of rigor that I was holding myself to account to with integrity was really, really high in my life and my expectations for myself. And that applied to, you know, who I was going to want to have as a, a life partner. And so the, the, like kind of little things, but then it's getting bigger and then bigger. And so there was a, essentially an incident that happened where she revealed something about her past that triggered some of that stuff in me. And then again, looking back, I can see that pressure cooker you oh, know, I can imagine something blew your gasket. It's like Mount St. Helens, right? She came out and knocked the top off of the mountain and this, this volcano erupted. And, it, and essentially it, was, it, it, it triggered things in me as if she'd had that affair like my father did. Mm -hmm. It wasn't what happened, but there were things that she had told me about her past and prior to our relationship that you know, were different than you know, some of these things that she revealed. Now, interesting side note is if you look at it objectively, you know, without the subject, just subjective mm -hmm. reaction and pain and hurt and the, you know, all the stuff that it triggered for me, you know, she was actually being um, courageous and generous and, and vulnerable and trusting in revealing this thing. And had no clue that she was sitting on the pressure cooker. 
that dad didn't yeah that just that literally was like the top of the volcano erupted and this intense emotional pain and agony and um it felt like this searing burning you know pain in my chest but there was nothing physically that i could see mm-hmm. but emotionally this runaway freight train i couldn't like settle my mind this just thoughts and things were running 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 this emotional intensity was just overwhelming and actually just intensifying mm-hmm. i wasn't able to sleep after a couple of weeks of not sleeping, I ended up breaking off the relationship. After a month of not sleeping, I was going out of my mind. And I was still working full-time as an engineer. I, you know, my boss noticed like, oh, you know, what's up? You know, you're not performing at the normal standard. I'm like, yeah, you know, I had a really bad breakup. It's like, oh, I've been there. You know, you just gotta focus on work. You know, you got to put it out of your mind. It's just, it's not worth it. Same thing with my coach. You know, he knew I wasn't sleeping. There was a point where it's like, well, there's not really any point training until, you know, you get this handle, but like, stop, you know, basically stop feeling sorry for yourself. They you were know, telling you what to do, but not how to process emotion. Stop walling in the motion, just like be strong, power ahead, you know. Yeah. So, and I know we've, uh, We've covered a lot of uh, groundwork and I'll, I'll kind of push the accelerator a little bit because there's an even, now there's like the big <laughs> reveals that are going to be uh, things that we probably want to unpack more. It's like maybe there's a sequel coming. But, um, you know, sometimes life finds, throws you these big, big curves and, and, and blindsides you. And uh, I ended up waking up in a hospital bed I looked down and I could see my arms, my legs, my body. I'm, I'm, I couldn't move. I couldn't even feel anything. Doctors come in and, and showing and, and telling me that I'd broken bones at the base of my neck, badly crushed my spinal cord, was paralyzed from the neck down, neck down and would be a quadriplegic. I had never walked again. I could expect to spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. Yeah. Yeah, so it went from overwhelming, intolerable emotional agony with with what I was going through there to just like utter disbelief. And uh, there's a really pivotal conversation with my coach where he called me on the phone about a week into this and, you know, how are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? How am I doing? This is beyond my worst nightmare. I mean, I'm lying there. I can't move. I can't feel. I don't know. They're saying I'm never going to walk again. And really in that overwhelm, that anxiety, that, oh my gosh, like, you know, not knowing and, and certainly a pretty, pretty bleak, bleak and grim outlook. And I, you know, he had the nerve to challenge me. He said, are you going to fight and make yourself well? Or are you going to give up and quit? And I couldn't believe that he would say that. Like, I was so pissed. If I could have, I might have probably would have hang up the phone, but the, and, or screamed F you, you know, <laughs> But this poor Filipino nurse is holding the phone. I didn't want to give her a heart attack. And in this inner rage, I'm fit to be tied. Um, I'd like to think that Olympian in me and probably the engineering in me presented with that choice. You know, it seemed clear. Well, I've got to do one of those two. So what came out of my mouth was I'm going to fight, make myself well. 
I'm going to recover 100% and walk out of here. And then he said, okay, great. Then that's what we'll do. So he aligned with me on this really preposterous declaration and this bold, defiant vision that I was actually going to walk away from this, this injury that people don't recover from. And he later told me that the doctors used to yell at him in the hallway that he, that he was giving me false hope. And he said, hey, look, this is what Scott said. I'm just supporting him in what he said he wants to do. So the, the short version of that story is that I walked out of the hospital on my own power after just six weeks. I was able to harness all those mental and physical, you know, distinctions and the mastery, you know, will and so much that I developed and understanding the power of visualizing what you want to have happen, of just speaking it at a time when I couldn't use my body, couldn't do anything else, and really applied, you know, my knowledge to this situation in, in designing my own recovery program, as opposed to the default, which was kind of making you good at dealing with this tragedy or this, this, this loss. John, yeah. how long did it take you to actually speak about that gap between I was overwhelmed, my life was kind of imploding, and I woke up in the hospital? Because there's a gap there. Well, there was an 18-year gap. So for 18 years, you didn't talk about what happened between those two very different experiences of life. One is I'm overstressed, I'm overcommitted, my emotional life is a hot mess, I'm not sleeping, I'm not sleeping, I'm not sleeping, I'm not sleeping, I'm not sleeping. And I woke up in the hospital. Fast forward us 18 years, <laughs> what happened? Because you walked out of that hospital triumphant with a secret. And you'd been carrying your dad's secret since you were 16. And you'd been carrying the secret of a 13-year-old feeling relief at his father's death since 13. Now you've been carrying this other secret for 18 years. What happened that you opened up and let some light in, let some people in, let the world hear what your truth was? Well, I may use this metaphor moving forward. I, you know, it's not just that I had an elephant in a room. I had like a literal elephant graveyard. <laughs> Honey, you had a herd. Yeah. And we got a whole joke in my family about that. No, no, so we'll, we'll have to do that on a break. But right now, let's just. Let's well, I can really, I can into it. I can give you a really telling glimpse into that. And then I can expand a little bit more. And I could probably do it in about three minutes. So. A week after, two weeks in, after my injury, a week after that one really galvanizing and, and empowering conversation with my coach, he came to the hospital to visit me. And by then I'd been such a pain in their ass. I said, I'm not a patient, I'm an inpatient. I'm gonna walk out of here before you know it. Uh, I ended up bringing in my own food I, and I got my own room, right? So I wouldn't have any distractions and other things and could focus on what I wanted. And I had him close the door and come over close. And I told them that that hadn't been an accident. 
that going headfirst down the flight of concrete steps in front of my apartment was something that I'd done on purpose. And it was my way of dealing with that intolerable emotional pain and agony that came up, the unending, increasing torture, that, that physical pain, which now I learned that neuroscience tells us that physiologically our, our brain can't tell the difference between physical pain and emotional pain. So it's every bit as valid and every bit as um, impactful. But I, but I told him that and he looked right back at me and he said, you can never tell anyone. Let's be stoic. The same Let's... thing I told myself 15 years prior, the same thing I was telling myself when I was in that emotional trauma, and there was, you know, again, the, the iceberg metaphor, maybe 10% of that was what would happen in the relationship that, that with that woman. Mm -hmm. But there was this 90% of the surface that this got let go that just overtook me. It's like the genie in the bottle. Once that gasket blew, you were left with an emotional, hot, boiling mess. And no emotional resilience, no emotional support system, because they'd all been shut down and cut off by the decisions that were made at a time you don't even remember about, you know, boys don't have emotion. We are, we man up. Boys yeah. don't cry, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there, yeah, there was, if there's a victim. A competitor. You know, you, you never want to have your, your opponents know if you're nervous, you mm -hmm. know, or not feeling good or you're injured, right? You can't show any weakness. You got to stay strong. You got to be in control. Mm -hmm. And I literally, I didn't have a framework or even language and words. And with my limited perceptions of the mental health field. Um, stay as am, far away and, as possible. Oh, and, and, you know, so what I did have is largely through Hollywood and the media, which I challenge you to find me a positive portrayal of any, you know, mental health medical professional. Now that's becoming a little bit more of a cultural conversation, but mm -hmm. by and large, you know, if you go in the movie theater, most of those are, are you know, sarcastic and poking fun and, and really not very flattering. Yeah. So I literally imagined, and I referenced the movie Terminator, you know, if, if I told someone what was really going on for me, I would end up locked away in restraints, you know, institutionalized pump full of drugs for the rest of my life, like in that literal straitjacket. Mm -hmm. Being the warrior that I was, there was no way I was going to turn myself over to that kind of fate. And so after almost two months of not sleeping a, a wink, um, I got to that breaking point. It was probably, you know, almost a month before that, that I started having those thoughts of killing myself as a way to get out of that emotional pain. I didn't want to kill myself. Right. We don't want to die breaking point where I couldn't take the pain anymore. And that seemed like the best choice I could make at the time to get out of the emotional pain. And the one thing that I believe that I could have done that would have made a difference to help me shift and, and heal and get out of that would have been to talk to someone and ask for help. And that's the one thing you've been programmed over your entire life, the two step, talk to someone, ask for help. Those are the two things that you could not on a very visceral level do. So Scott, the fact that you've broken the silence now is such a service to everyone who's living in a pressure cooker, to anyone who's ever felt alone. 
because suicide is a lonely space. It happens in silence where there's no one else around to talk to. And your willingness to tell this story, to allow other people to come into this world with you, to experience life through your eyes, is such an amazing gift that you are giving to all of us. And I just want to say thank you. Mm. And yes, we're going to have to have part two because we now have this other open loop of the 18 years and what that was like for you recovering, setting another new world record of walking out of a hospital in six weeks when they had told you that was never going to happen. It was not possible. Yeah. And then we have this 18 years that my guess is you were building up pressure again because you had another secret on top of a secret on top of a secret. And it's my story. And, you know, the pressure cooker that I lived through is the mother of a teen suicide attempt survivor. And all of the things that kept that press down. And so I want to give you one kudos. You were only 18 years. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> there are people who literally are suffering in silence. And your willingness to share this journey and to break the silence is nothing short of you are our hero. So you're going to get an invitation. You're going to you'll be part of our journey going forward with the movement because you are an, <laughs> you are an inspiration, an inspiring person, a very inspiring person because of your willingness to break the silence. It's not that you're inspiring because you tried to end your life and threw yourself down a flight of concrete stairs. That's not the story. The story is that in one moment, you decided something other than the program that you had had your whole life. And you said, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense anymore. I'm gonna share. And I just wanna say thank you for being willing to do that. And for being willing to come back and, and tell us the rest of the story. We might have to interview you and, and put this out as a special event. And so my, my people will reach out to your people, meaning I'll send your link, get on my calendar. Let's get it done. <laughs> be able to share that in any way that makes a difference for other people. And, um, you know, one of the things that I say, I think one of my two, two real keys that I want to leave people with. One is that I very much believe if it could happen to me, it could happen to anybody. You know, you never know what's going what's gonna to be that thing that triggers that thing inside of us. And, um, you know, sometimes the most courageous thing is just to tell the truth, to ask for help and to stop suffering in silence. Yeah, that's a biggie. So tell the truth, stop suffering in silence, ask for help. There we go. Three keys for living in a state of relaxation and joy. So, Scott, thank you. My pleasure and my honor. Thank you for having me today.